Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Is this deal going to get me closer or further away from the life I want to live? And not all deals work for all lifestyles that you want to live. Before we get into today's episode, I want to offer you a free service and a free gift. Yes, a free gift. You're a loyal best ever listener. You deserve free gifts. And it's from our best ever partner, Secure Pay One, the landlord helper. So are you a landlord or investor who's self-managing? Well, if you're self-managing, is that the best way to scale your business? And are you fulfilled by self-managing or would you rather be doing other stuff with your time? Like, I don't know, scaling your business, scaling your portfolio, making more money, bringing more rentals, rental income coming in because you're acquiring more properties. If you want to scale, if you're not getting fulfilled by self-managing, then here comes the free service. Here comes the free gift. Linda Libatory, you know her, episode 714 I interviewed her about her best ever advice, talked to her about her company, which is the solution to your problem, Secure Pay One, the landlord helper. They handle the phone calls, they handle the rent collections, they handle late payment reminders, they handle the lease violation notices, everything from the text messages, reminders, all the way to collecting the ACH payments. Linda's team will help you scale your business, whether you got 500 units or even a handful of units, go to mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. That's mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. They're going to give you a free 30-minute goal strategy session. They'll give you free setup and the first 30 days free, mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Again, if you are self-managing and you're not fulfilled by self-managing and you agree that there's a better way to scale your business, scale your investments, then go to mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Take Linda and her team up on their generous offer of giving you a trial and a strategy session to see if it's right for you. mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Julie Broad, how are you doing, Julie? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, my pleasure. Nice to have you on the show. A little bit about Julie. She is the founder of Book Launchers and a full-time real estate investor. She began investing in 2001. She's owned property in six different cities and raised over $4 million for deals. She is the author of 
More than cash flow, the real risks and rewards of profitable real estate investing. And she's based in Los Angeles, California. With that being said, Julie, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, you bet. First of all, I'm Canadian. I actually just moved to Los Angeles, so I hardly feel like Los Angeles is home, but (laughs) that is where I go home at the end of the day. In 2001 is when I got started in real estate. And basically for me, it had just been a year since I started working. And I started to think, this is going to be a long life of working for somebody else. So I created this plan that I called Freedom 35. And all it was was I just didn't want to have to work for somebody else by the time I was 35. But I looked around. I created the plan, but I actually had no idea how it's going to get there. (laughs) I looked around and I thought, hmm, I had actually paid for a year of university with stock trading. But that felt really lucky. It just kind of felt like I lucked out on the gold stocks and and Uh didn't think I could repeat it. And real estate seemed like the only thing that I could kind of do on the side that would help me get to my Freedom 35 plan. And so I purchased two deals that year with the money I'd been saving. I went back to school shortly after that to do my MBA. And I took the money I'd saved to do my MBA and I put it into my first two properties, partnered with my boyfriend at the time. And that's kind of where we went from there. We liked it. We thought, this is kind of fun. And in the next year after that, or next year and a half, we did five more deals, getting more creative because we had no cash and the banks wouldn't finance the students. But that's kind of where we started. And that was quite a while ago now. (laughs) (laughs) You had the Freedom 35 plan. How old were you when you started that plan or created it? I think I was 24, 2001. I'd have to do some fast math, yeah, yeah. but yeah, 24. Okay. <laughs> okay, you're 24 years old when you created the plan, and let's see, so 24, 15, so you're about 37, is that correct? I'm 40 now. 40, so okay, my I'm math like, is terrible, yeah. <laughs> no, it's okay, I'm totally with you. That's why I was like, I don't know how old I was. <laughs> Okay. uh, I quit my job when I was 31. So my freedom 35, I was ahead of the game on that one. (laughs) You knew where I was headed with this, right? I wasn't necessarily asking your age. I was just asking more about the plan. Okay. So you quit your job when you were 31 years old. Did your income from the investments replace or exceed the full-time job salary? would have been nice if that's how it worked, but no. I basically got impatient. I got to the point where I was not happy in my job, and the thought of leaving my job to go find another job, it just didn't work for me. I just knew I had to leave and dive into real estate full-time and make the most of it at that point. So my timing was terrible, though, because this was 2008. Mm. Uh, So seven years after I started, and 2008, I decided to go full-time in real estate. So no, my income was not replacing it. And all of the best-ever listeners, I'm sure you know, 2008 was a terrible year for real estate. All the values went down. It's tough to get tenants, all that kind of stuff. And even in Canada, we had it a little better than in the U.S., but it still was a tough time. But nonetheless, it was a great learning experience to do it at the toughest time. Because once you've gone through the toughest time, you know you can handle anything. Did you make money in 2008, 2009 when you went full-time? I moved in with my parents. So I got married and did what every newlywed wants to do, and that is move back home with your parents. (laughs) (laughs) Because we were making money, but we weren't making much. We certainly were not making enough to replace my salary at the time. And so we moved in with my parents, and the little money that we were making, we poured into real estate. And about a year later, I got my husband at the time. People think, oh, you quit your job, but your husband had a job. My husband was a commercial mortgage broker at the time. Oh, wow. Double whammy. (laughs) 
Yeah, he was making absolutely nothing, but he did stick it out in that job for another year. And finally, I dragged him out. I said, look, you're not making money. Let's do this full time. Just let's go for it. And so, yeah, we dove in head first at the time. And within two and a half years, we were out of my parents' house and living on our own and doing quite well. <laughs> within those two and a half years, from 2008 living with your parents to 2010, 2011-ish, how did you specifically make money during the tough times of real estate that allowed you to then move out of your parents' house and get your own place and be on your own two feet? You bet. The two main things we did were rent-to-own as well as we raised all our money. So we were working with investors who wanted to get into real estate. The advantage of that time was a lot of people did see that real estate was going to come back. People always need a place to live. So people realized that, yeah, it's down now. This is probably the cheapest we're ever going to buy it. Let's get in and ride the wave back up. So we were doing primarily buy and hold, but we added rent to own to our strategy to get that cash flow up because with the rent to own, a place that might rent for 1400 we would be able to get eighteen, nineteen hundred dollars rent because part of that was a credit going back to the purchase of the property in the future. We raised all our money to do the deals from, from investors and we added rent to own strategy. We were doing basically a house every month. We were also doing a lot of rentals to add suites so that we were getting additional income from the basement suites if we weren't doing a rent to own on it. Will you repeat that last part about the suite? So you were doing a house a month and you're also doing renovations and what'd you say about the suite? We would add a suite. So in Canada's basement suites and other places, they might just add a second unit to the property. But we were adding another unit so that we could generate additional income from other properties. So if we found a great single-family home with a good layout, we could add a suite so that that would generate cash flow. Because the whole thing for us was cash flow. We had to get the money coming in the door. We had the income to live on. Was there any type of house that you would look for? where you could add a suite because you casually just mentioned it. Well, we just added on another room and we got more income. I'm like, yeah, duh, I, sh I should always do that. <laughs> like, I buy a four bedroom house. I'm going to make it a five bedroom house, a five bedroom house, make it a six. But I imagine there's zoning and other types of characteristics of a property that you look for prior to implementing that strategy. Good question. So basically, we narrowed in on a couple of neighborhoods where in the 70s, builders had built this one format of house. It had three bedrooms up and a bathroom upstairs, sometimes a bath and a half, like a little ensuite off the master. And then downstairs was usually either open basement with another bathroom or the plumbing for a bathroom, or sometimes they had a bedroom and a bathroom and some other space. But it was the same format house in these couple of neighborhoods. So it was the exact same house so that we were just hitting repeat on that renovation. It, basically, it was a three-bedroom house up, the space downstairs, sometimes that fourth bedroom. But the big thing for us was that area focus was getting to know our neighborhoods, getting to know exactly the layout of the house. So we could walk in and within 60 seconds, it's like, yeah, this house is going to work. And we also knew the problems. Like they all kind of had a couple design flaws. So we knew, okay, we're going to have to fix this thing on the deck because it leaks. We know that this is going to be how we're going to put the bathroom or the kitchen in downstairs. That made everything repeatable. And it also allowed us to keep our costs down by narrowing in on a couple neighborhoods with the exact same layout of house. That's beautiful. So you identified a neighborhood that was built by the same builder or builders who build very similarly. Therefore, you knew what to look for, what the opportunities were and what the design flaws were. So you go in and remedy those. And it was basically a, a repeatable process. 
Yeah, and then you don't have to run your numbers every time. You don't have to research rent. Then it's really easy in the future, too, when you're checking on your properties because all our properties are really in a small distance. You could walk that neighborhood and check on a good percentage of our properties. They're all within walking distance of each other because we did zero in on that neighborhood. Yeah, that's another good point. Okay, let's talk about how you funded all these deals. You said you focused on two main things, rent to own and raising all of the money that you need to purchase the real estate. Can you, from a high level, and very briefly, because I want to spend more time on raise all the money, but on the rent-to-own business model, can you mention the overall business model and also specifically the ways that you make money within that business model? Yeah, rent-to-own is basically giving the tenant the right, not the obligation, to purchase the property from you in the future. and in exchange, they usually give you some sort of deposit up front because you're locking in a price for them in the future. So if the property goes up tremendously in value, you don't get that profit. The tenant actually gets the profit if they buy it from you. So you get a deposit up front for that right. And then every month, typically, a portion of the rent goes towards their down payment in the future to help them buy it. Now, people that we were typically working with were either new to the country, so they didn't have credit established, or people who had gone bankrupt in the past but were reestablishing their credit. They had good jobs. They just didn't have the credit to buy their house. So that's where it was. And for us, it was the cash flow because you get the deposit, but you also get that cash flow every month, the extra rent credit. And how long typically do you have the rent-to-own contract before they exercise their option to purchase? We typically did two years, sometimes three, but really hard to know what the real estate market is going to do in the future. And you want to set the price so that it's fair so that they'll be able to buy it. But you also don't want to leave $100,000 on the table because the market shoots up. So we didn't want to do them too far in the future. Okay. So now let's talk about how you were able to raise money for these deals. One, how did you structure it with investors? Let's start there. Apparently, we did a joint venture. So basically, our partner would put in all the money that we needed or the majority of the funds that we needed, and they would qualify for bank financing. Because here in Canada, not here in the U.S. where I am right now, but in Canada, we still were able to get bank financing for some properties. If, If somebody had great credit and a good job, they could still qualify for financing. We couldn't because banks don't like real estate investors, really. So by working with people with great income, they could qualify for the best rates. And then they would put up all the money and we would do all the work. Like I said, we had our systems dialed in. We knew our property. We oversee the properties going forward and exchange, you know, split the profits. And of course, if anything goes wrong in the future, we split that too. So if something needs a roof or something explodes, we're both on the hook for that 50-50. So that's why we called it a joint venture. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, your very first deal where you brought in a joint venture partner and he or she funded the majority of it or all of it was it 50 50 no the very first deal was way back in 2003 and we just partnered with a friend basically because we didn't know what we were doing way back then and i think it was actually we put in 30 percent of the funds and he put in 70 percent way back when did you split it 50 50 or did you split it 70 30 No, we split it all 50-50 going forward because he recognized that we were doing all the work. But the challenge with that was we actually did five deals with him over the years, but he never would go to the model where he put in all the funds. So if you do that to start, just know that that person is going to feel like, even though we made him 
probably the most money that we made anybody over all those years. He still felt like we had to put money in because that's how we'd always done it. Mm-hmm. And so just know that people will have that expectation if you start there. So we stopped doing deals with him because we weren't going to put money in mm-hmm. after a while. Yeah. That's a fairly reasonable expectation from an investor standpoint because they want to see alignment of interest and they want to see that you have your own money at risk in the deal. So how did you bring in other joint venture partners without putting your own money in the deal? Because I know that question came up multiple times. You know, it's funny because once you own your value, people don't question it anymore because for years people would always say, well, you don't have any skin in the game. Why should I invest with you? And then one day, I think we'd just gone through a hurricane of dealing with a bunch of problems that our partners were on the beach kicking back. They didn't have to worry about anything. And we're still sending them the checks, giving them their 12 to 15% return every year. And we realized, you know what, we're giving them massive value. They're not getting returns like this anywhere else. And we just stopped hearing it. And I know that sounds kind of woo-woo-y, but when you walk into a room and you meet with somebody and you tell them, this is how it is, this is why we do it this way, and you're willing to walk out the door if they don't think that's fair, Mm -hmm. then people don't question it anymore. Or if they really aren't a good fit to work with you, then they leave and they go find somebody who will put money in. But if you own your value, it comes across and you won't hear it as much. Renta owns the way that's structured is that it's anticipated you're not going to have the property in two to three years, that the tenant slash the buyer is going to exercise their option of purchase in two to three years. So basically you're making money along the way and you do not have the deal in three years. So what have you done since then, if anything, to build your own portfolio since those are basically three-year flips but making money in multiple ways versus a fix and flipper makes it in usually one way? A couple things. One is we only did rent-to-owns for a couple of years just for the cash flow. I'm not a big fan of them personally because when they fail, it's miserable. If the tenant doesn't buy from you, and this is totally personal, but I feel because you keep the deposit, you keep the rent credits, that's how it's all structured. That's kind of why rent-to-own exists. But it's just a bad feeling, and it's nothing you did wrong. It's all been straightforward right from the start. But we had a whole bunch fail all at once because the city assessments came out, and the city assessments were down, and city assessments aren't a good reflection of property values. But our tenants all saw their city assessments and said, hey, you know, I'm supposed to buy this in a year, and it's not worth what you're telling me it's worth. And they didn't even have conversations with us, and we had three, bang, 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 quit without even talking to us to say, I'm out. And just a terrible feeling. So I'm not a fan. But back to the question, basically, we only did it for a couple of years just to generate cash flow. We were always focused on buy and hold because we were in this to create the freedom. And we didn't want to have to always be turning deals. We don't actually do active deals anymore. We just oversee our portfolio now. Mm -hmm. Where's your portfolio? In Canada. And it's all now in British Columbia. Wow. All in Canada. I imagine you have a third-party management company since you're now in Los Angeles. Yeah, we have a couple because we did get into commercial deals in the last little while. So we've got a commercial property manager and a residential property manager. Let's talk about the commercial deal. What are the numbers and what is it exactly? We have a dental office, a couple, but the most recent one, and it would categorize under the best deal that we've done, was a medical office building. We bought a couple years ago for a little over $3 million, and it's just such a self-sufficient long-term leases with the commercial property manager in place. It's triple net leases, so that means the tenants are paying the majority of the cost. So when taxes go up, it's 
the tenants that cover that cost. Snow removal is more expensive this year than the tenants cover it. So I'm a big fan because I want to be hands-off now. Both my husband and I have other interests. We've used real estate to create the life we want to live. We're not focused on real estate as our day-to-day thing anymore. Mm-hmm. And so deals like this are just spectacular because we do check on things. My husband's very active in communicating with the property manager, but it's really much, much less time intensive than residential. I'm bouncing around and forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just looking at my notes. I do have a couple of follow-up questions on that deal. But when you just mentioned the husband thing, it triggered a question. The boyfriend you partnered with on your first two deals, is that your husband now or is that someone else? Yes, it is my husband. It worked out. Not always okay. a recommended strategy, but for me, it worked <laughs> out. <laughs> okay. My follow-up question, if it's different people, is how did you resolve the disposition of those properties and the ownership split whenever you two broke up? But we're not going there because you haven't broken up and you won't break up. Okay. We did have a partnership agreement because at the time we were newly dating. I think we've been together eight months at the time and wow. you, know, you never know where things are going to go. So we had a partnership agreement drawn up, nothing super formal, but in the event that we did break up, we laid that all out because this was business as much as we were together. This is still a business transaction. All right. Now let's go back to the medical office, $3 million purchase price. Do you two have partners in that one? Yeah, we have a few that put in required significant capital to get into that deal. So yeah, we have uh, three partners on that deal. Three partners. How did you get to know each of the three. And I'm asking because other best ever listeners who want to put together a $3 million deal and they don't know who to talk to about partnering, they would love to know how you met your three money partners. Yeah, you bet. So interestingly, one of them read my first book, More Than Cashflow, and had contacted us saying, I want to do a deal with you. So my book was Mm -hmm. the primary source of one of them. And then the other one was actually my husband's parents, which generally we say no family. So kind of a hard and fast rule. But again, we treated it like a business relationship. There's contracts in place, but his parents are the other ones. And then another one is a longtime investor of ours who's done quite a few residential deals with us who we originally met through just spreading the word of what we were doing, letting our friends and family know what we were doing so that if they ever heard of anybody who wanted to get into real estate, they let us know. And for quite a few years, that's all we focused on, was building our brand, letting people know we were investors, and really trying to attract the capital. So the other investor was somebody we've worked with for years through that kind of original source. Okay. And you built a track record with that investor and then proved yourself over time. Did you all put any of your own money in this deal, the medical office one? Yeah, we did put money into this one. And what structure do you have with investors on this one? Honestly, I'm not sure how much I should disclose on this particular one, if that's okay. That's fine. No biggie. So how long are you planning on holding on to this property? Long term, it's a really great property with future development potential. So it's got a big chunk of land in a really great spot in the city of Nanaimo. So we've got lots of different potential plans, nothing firm. But we're definitely looking at it from a 10-year, if not longer, holding. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? Ooh, I'd have to say that focus on creating the life you want to live. It's easy to get romantic about the numbers and distracted by deals and really just drive yourself to do more and more. But always come back to what's that ideal day you want to live. Because for a while, we got sidetracked from that. And real estate's a great way to create the life you want to live. I mean, we're down in L.A. My husband's pursuing acting. I've got a new business that I just love helping people uh, write books and publish them and sell them. And real estate got us there. 
So it's one of those things where just always go back to, is this deal going to get me closer or further away from the life I want to live? And not all deals work for all lifestyles that you want to live. What can you tell us about the dental office? It's just a single tenant property. We bought it a couple years ago. I could see it from where we used to live. (laughs) I like to keep an eye on things when it was close. But it's also cool because the lease has step-ups. So every year, the value of the property goes up because commercial is valued on its income. So every year, the lease rate goes up. And same thing, it's triple net. So it basically takes care of itself. And the cool thing about things like dental offices is if your tenant ever does leave, they rarely are just going to close the doors. They're almost always going to sell their practice. So you don't have to worry as much with the drawback of commercial as your property can be vacant for years. But with something like a dental practice, there's so much value in that practice that they're more likely to sell it. So you'll have a new tenant moving in when they leave. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Are you an investor who self-manages, talks to your residents, collects checks, and handles all the day-to-day tasks? Well, there's a better way, best ever listener, and guess what? That better way is Secure Pay One. Secure Pay One, the landlord helper, will have conversations over the phone with your residents whenever there's an issue, and the residents can pay you directly. So schedule your free trial and 30-minute session today at mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. That's mylandlordhelper.com forward slash Joe. Are you ready to close more deals and officially seal your financial freedom? The Dwellin Show with Ola Dantis discloses the most innovative real estate investing strategies to kickstart your quest to financial freedom. Go listen at com forward slash show. That's dwe com forward slash show. Best ever book you've read? Pitch Anything by Warren Class. Ooh, powerful one. I enjoyed that so much. I reached out to him afterwards and I interviewed him on the show. For somebody raising money, it's a spectacular book to read. Break down every preconceived notion that you have about having conversations with investors when you're selling something. Mm-hmm. What's the best ever time to move into your parents' house? (laughs) Um, Probably not when you're a newlywed. (laughs) Do it when you're young. Do it when you're really young. (laughs) Not as a 31-year-old newlywed? No. (laughs) Best ever deal that you've done that you haven't mentioned already? Oh, see, the medical office would be the best. I'm going to go with the worst one because it led to some of the greatest things in my life. We bought a sixplex that became a crack house. Our property manager got charged with manslaughter and it became known as a crack house and we couldn't sell it. We couldn't do anything with it. And it was an awful deal. But we learned the most from it. And my book was a number one overall Amazon bestseller in Canada, probably largely because of that story and the lessons that we learned and shared from that story. So there you go. There's a twist on the best deal. Oh, yeah. And knowing what you know now after experiencing that deal, what would you do differently if presented the same situation? I would never do a deal like that because I would go back to the life I want to live and my ideal day. And my ideal day is not dealing with challenging tenants and property that's always falling apart in a neighborhood where there's always rough things going on. We did that deal because the numbers were just phenomenal. 
But you know what? There's a reason. When the numbers look too good to be true, they usually are. Those numbers were real, but we spent a massive amount of time, energy, and even money trying to fix the problem with that problem property. Best ever way you like to give back? Sharing what I've learned. That's really the biggest way. Is I've done a ton of videos, ton of articles. I'm always happy to share the lessons that I've learned. But also, I do give to a lot of causes. So if there's a cause that comes my way that touches my heart, I open up my wallet pretty fast. And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you, Julie? The best way is through my website, havemoreinfluence.com. And you can reach out through the contact form or sign up for the newsletter. You can always hit reply. It magically comes to my inbox. Well, Julie, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for talking through your career progression Moving into your parents' basement as newlyweds and the deals that you've done in 2008, 2009, and 10 specifically, that was interesting because it's a tough time. So how did you make money? You made money by doing the rent-to-owns and you brought in joint venture partners. You structured it in the 50-50 way primarily. There were some exceptions when you got started. And then your intentional approach to a lifestyle and the types of deals that you do now based on your intentional approach about the lifestyle that you choose to have and create for yourself versus chasing shiny objects that look like great cash-on-cash returns but might not align with your intentional lifestyle. And that's a really important focus of our conversation because you started out talking about the Freedom 35 plan and we ended talking about the focus on creating a life that you want to live and we got into some really good specifics in between. So thanks for being on the show, Julie. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Great chatting with you. Are you ready to close more deals and officially seal your financial freedom? The Dwellin' Show with Ola Dantis discloses the most innovative real estate investing strategies to kickstart your quest to financial freedom. Go listen at www.dwellin.com dot com forward slash show that's d w e l l y n n dot com forward slash show